All right, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. Uh, perhaps you're here for the children's Christmas program, or perhaps you're just looking for a place to worship on Christmas, or maybe you just heard we had good coffee. But whatever the case is, we are glad that you're here with us today. You should know that we are in the, uh, in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Luke. Now, it just so happens that the beginning of the Gospel of Luke lines up perfectly with the Christmas story, and so we're able to accomplish two things at once this morning. We're able to focus in on the Christmas story, and rightfully so, but we're also able to begin our trek through the Gospel of Luke. We really do believe that the Bible is the Word of God. We believe that every time we open His Word, He can do something powerful. And to that end, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to it here. Uh, God, we do pray that this morning, as we open Your Word in the Gospel of Luke, we pray that You would work in a mighty and powerful way. God, we pray that you would minister to us in the midst of the craziness of our own lives, in the midst of the chaos that we may be feeling. We just pray that you would work in us in a powerful way today, that you remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus, and that we would leave here this morning encouraged, knowing that you are a great God. Oh Lord, we pray that you would be at work in us, that although we are weak, although we are sinners, we pray that you would speak to us that you would work through us jars of clay this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So earlier this week, I stumbled across a list of 50 classic family movies that supposedly every kid needs to watch before they are 12 years old. Now, all of the movies on the list were released before the year 2000, and the basic idea is that these family movie, movies are so common and so well-known that apparently every kid needs to see them. Now, clearly a list like this is going to be highly subjective, and furthermore, the idea that every kid under the age of 12 needs to see every movie on the list seems like some serious hyperbole to me. But those acknowledgments aside, one of, the things that, one of the things that struck me in looking at the list is how few of the movies I've actually seen. Apparently, I was neglected as a child. I have never seen The Sound of Music. I've never watched the original version of Willy Wonka and the Charlotte Factory. I've never seen Heidi or Singing in the Rain or Anne of Green Gables or Babe or Swiss Family Robinson. But perhaps most surprisingly, at least according to the reaction I've received from many over the years, I have never seen The Wizard of Oz. And when I've told people that before as part of an icebreaker, icebreaker game or some other scenario where exchanging odd facts, I can't tell you how many people have expressed not just genuine surprise at that fact, but in some cases, genuine concern. People will say things to me like, how have you not seen The Wizard of Oz? How can you not watch it right now? It's a classic. But despite their concerns and their protests, I have still never seen the movie. And quite frankly, I don't even know the basic plot of the movie. I know there's a girl named Dorothy with red slippers. I know about the scarecrow and the lion and the tin man. I'm pretty sure there's both a tornado and a yellow brick road involved. But beyond that, my knowledge of The Wizard of Oz is very limited. In fact, I was surprised to find out a few years ago that The Wizard of Oz himself is not on the screen all that much in the movie. Apparently, he only appears for a few scenes. Now, according to my wife, which filled me in a little bit this week, those scenes are important, but he's not really the main character, which is not what I would have guessed given the title of the movie. I would have expected that The Wizard of Oz is about The Wizard of Oz. But truth be known, I think the fact that The Wizard of Oz is not primarily about The Wizard of Oz is actually kind of instructive for us this morning. Just because the story seems to be about one thing, or has a title that suggests it's about something, doesn't mean that this story is necessarily what it appears to be about. The Wizard of Oz would be one example of that reality, but actually I think our passage today is another example of that same reality. 
at first glance, given both the section headings in our Bible and the initial content of the passage, it would seem that today's passage is about the birth of John the Baptist. And at some level it is. No doubt the birth of John the Baptist is the occasion which leads Luke to write what he does in Luke 1, verses 57 to 80. But when you start to dive into the account that we're about to look at this morning, you begin to realize that the birth of John the Baptist is not really the focal point of what Luke is actually getting at in verses 57 to 80. Instead, in Luke 1, 57 to 80, the passage is actually about God. It's about God and his character and what God is doing in sending John the Baptist in order to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. So in the same way that the Wizard of Oz is not really about the Wizard of Oz, or at least that's what I've been told, today's passage, despite its initial appearance, is not really about John the Baptist. Instead, it's about God and what he's up to. And so my hope as we leave here this morning is that you leave not thinking, oh, what a cool story about John the Baptist. But instead, my prayer is that as you leave this morning, you leave thinking, what a great God we serve. Because at the end of the day, despite what the section headings may say, that's who this passage is about. It's about God, and it's about what he's up to in sending John the Baptist. So I said, let's turn our attention then. Luke 1, 57 to 80, if you're able, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Standing is just a simple way for us to indicate our reverence and our trembling as we read the word of God. So Luke 1, 57 to 80, the words will be on the screen. You can follow on that way. You can read along in your own Bibles, or you can just listen as I read. But the word of God says this, beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid, up in their, laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sin darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the days of his public appearance to Israel. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Now, despite what we've said so far, without question, the birth of John the Baptist does play a very important role in this passage. In verses 57 to 66, Luke recounts the birth of John and his subsequent naming. And then in verses 67 to 80, John's father, Zechariah, sings a song of praise in response to the birth of John. But having said that, as I alluded to earlier, I don't think the main point of the passage today has anything to do with John. 
Rather, I think the main point of Luke 1, 57 to 80, is that God is faithful to keep his promises, and he is merciful towards his people. And it just so happens that John the Baptist's birth is the occasion that demonstrates those realities. So this morning, rather than focusing on John, we're going to focus on the main point of the passage, which again, that God is faithful to keep his promises and merciful towards his people. I think it's important that you see both halves of that main point in the passage itself, that God is faithful to keep his promises and merciful towards his people. So let's start with the first half of the equation here, that God is faithful to keep his promises. Now, God's faithfulness to keep his promises is actually seen in a couple of different ways in this passage. It's seen in the actual birth of John himself, but it's also seen in the spiritual realities represented by John's birth. So again, let's consider both of those, starting with the birth itself. We see this in verses 57 and 58. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Now, at first glance, verses 57 and 58 seem like a fairly standard birth announcement. As those verses tell us, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son, and her neighbors and relatives reflected on the mercy of God and rejoiced with her. That sounds pretty similar to how you could describe any birth. For example, earlier this week, my brother and his wife had a baby. Now, ironically, my sister-in-law's name is Elizabeth also. I think you could easily describe the birth of their daughter in the same type of language that's used in verses 57 and 58. You could say something like, the time came for Elizabeth, in this case Elizabeth Miller, to give birth, and she gave birth to a daughter, and her neighbors and relatives rejoiced with her. In that way, there's nothing particularly noteworthy about the language of verses 57 and 58. What is noteworthy, though, is the background story. To understand the significance of verses 57 and 58, And to see how those verses demonstrate God's promise-keeping nature, you have to go back to Luke 1 in a passage that we looked at two weeks ago. So let's go back there for just a second to Luke chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, or verses 5 through 7. So I think we need to see what's happening back earlier in chapter 1 to understand why verses 57 and 58 are so significant. In verse 5 of Luke chapter 1, we read this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So those verses that we just read, verses 5 to 7, set the stage for the drama that then unfolds throughout the rest of chapter 1. In those verses, we're told that Zechariah and Elizabeth are both of priestly lineage, and both are of noble character. But crucially, they have no children. Elizabeth was barren, and now they're too old to have children. So this sets the stage for a promise that comes to Zechariah just a few verses later in verses 11 to 15. So again, in order to understand what's happening in verses 57 and 58, we need to see what's happening earlier. So let's look at verses 11 to 15, chapter 1 still. And there appeared to him, that Zechariah, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So in the midst of Elizabeth's barrenness, which we saw in verses 5 to 7, and in the midst of Zechariah and Elizabeth's old age, which we also saw in verses 5 to 7, God makes this promise that Elizabeth will bear a son, that Zechariah and Elizabeth will have great joy, and many will rejoice at his birth. 
Furthermore, he will be great before the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now you need to understand what was promised earlier in chapter 1 is exactly what's happening now in verses 57 and 58. Elizabeth gives birth to a son just as God promised. The birth leads to rejoicing by many just as God promised. And as we saw in last week's passage, that baby was filled with the Holy Spirit even from the mother's womb, just as God promised. So don't read verses 57 and 58 and miss the significance of what's happening in those two verses. Verses 57 and 58 are not just a standard birth announcement. They are a clear and unequivocal reminder to us, God keeps his promises. God said that Zechariah and Elizabeth would miraculously have a son despite their age and despite Elizabeth's barrenness, and that's exactly what happened. So the birth itself testifies to God's promise-keeping nature. Nothing, not even barrenness, not old age, can keep God from fulfilling his word. But the spiritual realities connected to John's birth also testify to God's promise-keeping nature. And those spiritual realities are the focus of Zechariah's song in verses 67 to 79. Let's turn our attention now to verses 67 to 79 in chapter 1. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So here's the interesting thing about Zechariah's song that we just read. Zechariah is clearly responding to the birth of his son, but in his song, he only briefly mentions his son towards the end. Instead, throughout the song, he's focusing on the spiritual realities represented by the birth of his son. Namely, that John is the forerunner for the Messiah, the one who prepared the way for the Lord. And that John's birth then is a sign that the Messiah is on the way and that the time of salvation has come. And it's that reality of the coming Messiah that Zechariah is meditating on in his song. The birth of his son, John, means that the Messiah is on the way. And the Messiah being on the way means that God has kept his promises and fulfilled his oaths. That which he promised he would do in the Old Testament, he is now doing. And the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises is something that Zechariah relentlessly stresses throughout his song. In fact, four times he mentions that God is fulfilling his word. In verse 69, he talks about God raising up a horn of salvation from the house of David. And then in verse 70, he notes this is something the holy prophets from of old spoke about. In verse 72, Zechariah talks about God showing mercy as promised to our fathers. In that same verse, he continues on by saying that in showing his mercy, God remembered his holy covenant. Then in verse 73, he talks about how the coming Messiah was the fulfillment of the oath that was made to Abraham. So at least four times, Zechariah explicitly points out that the coming Messiah fulfilled the word of God. It fulfilled the promises made in the Old Testament. 
But aside from those four explicit references to God fulfilling his word, the rest of the song in verses 68 to 79 is overflowing with Old Testament allusions and references that implicitly suggest the Messiah is fulfilling the Old Testament promises. Whether it be references to visitation and redemption in verse 68, that's Old Testament language, or the horn of salvation in the house of David in verse 69, Old Testament language, salvation from enemies in verse 71, Old Testament language, one who would prepare the way in verse 76, Old Testament language, visitation in the sunrise in verse 78, Old Testament language, light to those in darkness in the shadow of death in verse 79, Old Testament language, or a guide to our feet in the way of peace in verse 79, also Old Testament language. The language of Zechariah's song is littered with Old Testament references. And all of those references and all of those allusions are meant to remind us the birth of John the Baptist as the forerunner for the Messiah are a sign that God has kept his promises. He is fulfilled and is fulfilling his oaths. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. God keeps his word. He does not break his covenants. What he says he will do, he does. And that's the first half of the equation here as it relates to the main point of this passage. God is faithful to keep his promises. But also, we said there's a second half, and I think the second half is equally important. God is merciful towards his people. God's merciful towards his people. God's mercy and kindness, like God's promise-keeping nature, are also emphasized throughout the passage. Again, we see it first in the birth of John the Baptist. Look at verse 58. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Now in the case of verse 58, I think the mercy is a reference to a specific mercy given to Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were childless, Elizabeth was barren, and now they have a child. That's mercy, and that John was an undeserved, undeserved gift. It's mercy in that God is displaying his steadfast kindness towards the couple. So God's mercy is on display individually in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. But God's mercy is on display in a much larger scale in this passage too. And that larger scale is in view in Zechariah's song. Mercy is referenced a couple of times in that song. The first reference appears in verses 71 and 72. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So one of the things that's emphasized throughout the Old Testament is that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And that mercy is displayed in that he sent a Messiah to rescue us from our enemies and to save us from those who hate us. But there's another reference to mercy in Zechariah's song, and that's found in verses 76 to 79. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So verses 76 and 77 notify us that John the Baptist's role was to go before the Messiah, inform the people of the salvation that's coming, and let them know about the forgiveness of sins. But verse 78 helps us to know why God would send a Messiah to offer his salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. And the answer we're told in verse 78 is because of his tender mercy. Now I love that phrase, tender mercy. The word translated as tender here actually comes from a Greek word that literally refers to our bowels. The idea then is that God's mercy comes from the very deepest part of who he is. 
His mercy is not just mercy in name only. It comes from the very core of his being. He doesn't just have mercy on his people in some sort of formulaic way, as if he's like, well, I'll just get this out of the way. No, to the very core of who he is, he feels mercy towards his people. Hence the translation, tender mercy. Listen, I don't know what comes in your mind when you think about God's character. Maybe you think of God as a cosmic police officer waiting for you to mess up so he can flip on the lights and then come and write you a ticket. Or maybe you think of God as a disappointed father, always shaking his head at you and thinking, ah, here we go again. Or maybe you think of God as an angry and wrathful God, raining down justice on those who rebelled against him. Now, to be fair, especially as it relates to the last one, there is an element of truth in some of those descriptions, especially in this idea that God does rain down justice on those who've rebelled against him. That's true. But having said that, if you only see God as a cosmic cop, or if you only see God as a disappointed father, or if you only see him as an angry and wrathful God, then you are missing his heart. It's true that he is righteous and just and will punish sin. That is inarguable from Scripture. But as Zechariah also reminds us here in his song, he is full of tender mercy. In that way, I think you could say this. He is less like the cosmic cop trying to get you and more like the loving father waiting with open arms to embrace you in your pain. He is full of tender mercy. And ultimately, he demonstrated his mercy by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins that we could have forgiveness of sins and peace with God if only we would turn to Jesus in saving faith. Jesus' birth is a reminder that this, or John's birth, excuse me, is a reminder that the Savior is coming. And thus, John's birth is a tangible and vivid reminder to us of the tender mercy of our God. He does not leave us to perish in our sin. He does not leave us in the darkness. But in his tender mercy, he came to us. He visited us in order that he might redeem us. And he did so because to the core of who he is, he is full of steadfast love and compassion. He is tenderly merciful. And so I think that's the other half of the main point of the passage here, that God is merciful towards his people. So to put the two pieces together, we would say this, God is faithful to keep his promises and he is merciful towards his people. I think that's the main point of Luke 1, 57 to 80. Having said that, in light of the main point, in light of what we learn about God's character, what I want to do to finish our time together this morning is simply give you a few exhortations here in terms of how we should relate to God given what we read about God in this passage. Because if God is faithful to keep his promises and merciful towards his people, which he is, that should absolutely change the way that we approach him. So again, a few exhortations, three actually, in terms of how we should relate to God in light of what we learn about God in this passage. All right, exhortation number one, trust him. Trust him. Earlier this week, I was spending some time in prayer. And as I was praying, I was just looking out the window and watching cars drive by and just thinking about the people representing those cars and, and what difficulty they might be going through. And as I was doing that, the thought occurred to me, why hasn't God done something to step in and finish the brokenness? Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? What is he waiting for? But as I was thinking about those questions, the Spirit, Spirit graciously brought this passage to mind. And the Spirit gently reminded me in that moment, God will keep his promises. One day, Jesus will return and the brokenness will be gone. One day, Christ will return and he will make things right. Just as he promised that one day he would send a Messiah to rescue us from our sin, and he fulfilled that promise by sending Jesus. 
he will one day also fulfill the promise that he made, that Jesus will come again, and all who've trusted in him will reign with him forever in glory. And on that day, there'll be no more pain and no more brokenness, no more sorrow, no more death. If he has promised that it will happen, it will. We can trust him. His character is such that he will not and he cannot break his promises. He is faithful. And that means that we can trust him to keep his promises in the big picture sense, what I'm just talking about here, that Jesus will come again. But we can also trust him to keep his promises in a day-to-day sense. For example, think about the precious promise in Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 tells us that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those of us who are in Christ, that is one of the most precious promises in all of Scripture. Because it means that regardless of our circumstances, God is working for our good in all things. Now, I will say this. The good of Romans 8.28 is a very specific kind of good. As the next verse, Romans 8.29, makes clear, the good is becoming more like Jesus. In other words, the good in view in Romans 8.28 is not necessarily the good that we often think of as good. Romans 8.28 is not promising a life of ease or comfort or good health or lots of material prosperity. It's promising us good in the sense that we're becoming more like Jesus and thus more prepared for glory. But even with that understanding of Romans 8.28, let's be honest. Sometimes it's still hard to believe that Romans 8.28 is true. When your kid is sick or your loved one dies or the bank account is empty, or your health is deteriorating, in those moments, it can be hard to believe that God is working for your good, even if we're defining good in the right way. So how do we fight against unbelief in those moments? How do we fight to believe that God's promises, including the promise of Romans 8.28, are true? How do we fight to believe that God will do what he says he will do? I think we fight by remembering God's past actions and by remembering God's character. When I was in high school, I would go to the school early in the morning, three or four days a week to lift weights. And before I could drive, I was dependent on getting a ride from someone else to get to the weight room. More specifically, I was dependent on my friend Derek's dad, Dan. Dan would bring Derek into town for the weight room, and on the way, he would pick me up. Now, here's the thing you need to understand to set up this story here. When I was a freshman in high school, which is when this is primarily taking place, we did not have cell phones. I know that's hard to believe. I know that means I'm a dinosaur. Confirmed. All that's true. I'm just telling you, we didn't have cell phones. And so I couldn't text Derek and say, are you on the way? I also couldn't call their house to confirm they were coming because they live 15 minutes away. And by the time they should have been on the way, if I called, I would have just woken up his mom. That would not have been good. That would not have been good. So I just had to trust they're on their way. And they're going to remember to stop and pick me up. And at first, that was kind of hard for me. I like to be on time. And if it was 5.58 and they're supposed to show up at 6, how did I know that Dan was going to be there? But as the weeks and months went by and Dan showed up every time on time, I stopped sweating it. Even if it was 5.59 and 30 seconds, I knew Dan would be there by 6. Because he'd kept his promises in the past and because he'd proven himself to be trustworthy, I stopped worrying about it. I knew Dan would be there when he said he would be, when he said he would be there. And in fact, in all the years that he picked me up, he always was. I knew he would live up to his end of the bargain. But here's the question I would ask you this morning. If I could trust Dan to that degree, how much more can we trust the God of the universe? It was always possible Dan could have overslept, or he could have gotten sick, or he could have had a heart attack or a car accident. In other words, it was always possible due to circumstances beyond his control that Dan would not have been able to keep his word. But with God, hear this, it's not even possible for him to break his word. 
He always keeps his promises. In fact, it would defy his character to not keep his promises. So listen, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what trials you might be facing. My guess is, though, that some of you in this room are facing some really serious difficulties this morning. And maybe you're wondering, can I trust God? Is he really working for my good in this? Will he really keep his promises? But the unquestioned answer from Luke 1 is, yes, you can trust him. If you are in Christ, he is working for your good. If you are in Christ, the day of glory is coming because he is faithful and he always, and without exception, keeps his promises. So trust him. That's the first exhortation here from Luke 1, 57 to 80. Exhortation number two, serve him. Serve him. Look at verses 71 to 75 again. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abram to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. I think verses 74 and 75 are important because they help us understand why God saves and rescues us. The goal of our salvation is not just that we get to heaven or that our sins are forgiven, although those are both glorious truths. But according to verses 74 and 75, one of the reasons why God rescues us is so that we might serve him in holiness and righteousness. In other words, God rescues us that we might delight in him and and magnify him by obeying his commands and thus pointing out his greatness towards others. Or to say more simply, the goal of our salvation is to make much of him. We serve him so that we can magnify him to others. And actually, I think the life of Zechariah is a beautiful picture of this. So let's go back here to verses 59 to 66. I love this part of the story. Verse 59, And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all those things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. Now again, to go back to earlier in chapter 1, we should be fair and say that Zechariah in chapter 1 was a work in progress. In verse 6, he was described as righteous and blameless. But even still, when the angel tells Zechariah of God's plan to give Zechariah and Elizabeth his son, Zechariah doubts. And because of his lack of faith, he's unable to speak until the time of John's birth. In other words, Zechariah didn't trust God the way that he should. So God decides that he's going to teach him how to trust. And given the way this story of verses 59 to 66 unfolds, it's clear Zechariah learned the lesson. He learned to trust. And that trust was evidenced in his obedience. Now, amongst the crowd, there's some debate about what the baby should be named. The crowd seems to think the baby should have a family family name, maybe even the name Zechariah. In fact, they seem to be pressuring Elizabeth. You should name him a family name. But the angel had told Zechariah the baby's name should be John. And when given the chance, Zechariah makes this clear. I love the language of verse 63. Notice, Zechariah does not say, we're going to name him John, or he'll be called John. He simply states, his name is John. For Zechariah, the matter was settled. 
God had told him the baby was to be named John, so his name was John. At this point in his life, obedience was not a question for Zechariah. Of course he would obey. Of course he would look for opportunity to glorify God by doing what God says so that God might be praised. This mindset is evidenced in what we read in verse 64 also. Read that verse again. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Now keep in mind, at this point, Zechariah had not spoken for a really long time. Presumably it's been months and months and months, maybe up to nine months he's not spoken. But when he has opportunity to speak again, what's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? Praise for God. Right? Not anger that God made him mute, not relief that he could finally speak, but instead praise. God humbles Zechariah and teaches him to trust. And Zechariah learns the lesson. His response is to obey or serve God and praise God. And in that, I think, is a mini picture of what the Christian life should look like. God rescues us so that we can serve him and praise him. He rescues us so that we can make much of him. Listen, I'm going to let you in on a little bit of a secret this morning. Life is not about you. And satisfaction is not found in living for yourself. It's found in living for his praise and glory. It's found in serving the one who rescued us from the depths of our sin. So that's the second exhortation here, the second exhortation here in terms of how we should respond to God in light of what we learn about God. We should serve him. Exhortation number three, rest in him. Rest in him. Look again at the last two verses of Zechariah's song, verses 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, I found myself thinking a lot about verse 79 this week. And more specifically, I found myself contemplating the language that's used there to describe the situation Jesus stepped into. As verse 79 describes it, the Messiah was coming to give light to those in darkness and those who are in the shadow of death. Listen, the older I get, the more I realize how messed up this world is. I see it in my own family. I see in the issues that we deal with. But I see it in many of your lives as well. I see the brokenness that is just so pervasive. And because I'm aware of that, the description of verse 79 hits home. Apart from Christ, we sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And I doubt I need to convince you of the truthfulness of that statement this morning. I think we know it's hauntingly accurate. We see it with our eyes. We feel it in our bones. The world is dark. We live in the shadow of death. Now, many try to pretend like that's not true. They try to pretend like the shadow is not there, as if it is going to live forever, as if life on earth is not that bad. But deep down, we all know it's true that the world is dark and death is looming. So the question is, where do we go? How do we find light in the darkness? Where do we go to find life in the shadow of death? The answer of Luke 1, and really the answer of all the Bible, is that we go to Jesus. There's only one place to find rest for our weary souls in the arms of our Savior Jesus Christ. Because I'm sure some of you this morning feel, feel weary and exhausted. The world is wearing you down. And there's only one answer I know to that problem. Run to Christ. Run to the one who gives light to those in darkness. Run to the one who gives life to those who are in the shadow of death. Run to Jesus. 
Bring your doubts and your shame and your fear to him. Cast your burden on the one who cares. If you've never given your sin to him, if you've never trusted him for salvation, turn to Christ today. Look to the one who can guide your feet in the way of peace. Place all of your hope into the basket of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, I think that's the point of this passage. Lift your eyes up to him. Find your rest in him. As I said earlier, at first glance, it may seem like this is a passage about John the Baptist, but I don't think it is. John the Baptist is important, but this is a passage about God. Our God who is merciful to keep his promises, or excuse me, faithful to keep his promises and merciful towards his people. A God who loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to bring us out of darkness and out of the shadow of death. And because that's who he is, my encouragement to you this morning is simply trust him, serve him, and find your rest in him. There's no other place to go. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the beautiful reminder that we have here in this passage of the hope that is found in the birth of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would remember you are faithful to keep your promises. You are merciful towards your people. And because of that, I pray that we would, I pray that we would trust you. I pray that we would serve you. I pray that we would find our rest in you. God, please help us to run to you knowing that in the shadow, in the shadow of death and in the darkness of this world, there's only one place that we can find hope. It's in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.